Thank you, Kelly. This is uh, one of those Sundays, and that's one of those songs when you just almost don't need a sermon. <laughs> but notice the almost. <laughs> I appreciate what William said about our, uh, you, you get in your car and it just automatically brings you here. Now, if it'll just automatically fill itself. Uh, <laughs> well, We'll be in good shape. We're so glad that you're here uh, with us today uh, because of the holiday weekend. As Kelly said, we do have some away, and we have uh, guests with us, and we're delighted that you are here. Uh, you, you should have found in your uh, bulletin uh, this card, and I want to call that to your attention. Some of you have seen it before multiple times. Some of you may not have ever seen it before. It's called Becoming a Part of the Glen Allen Church Family. Um, this explains what it means to be a part of the body of Christ and a part of the body here at Glen Allen. And uh, if you uh, are interested in that, then we hope that you will take this and take it home with you and uh, read it. And uh, if we can help you in deciding that you want to obey the gospel of Christ and become a follower of Jesus, confessing him and being baptized into his name, just please let us know and we'll be delighted to help you. Or if you're already a follower of Jesus and you want to be a part of this church, let us know that, and we will gladly welcome you uh, as a part of the family. I wanted to say just a, a little bit about um, the trip that I, Linda and I have upcoming. We're leaving Wednesday. Uh, some of you have been kind of concerned about it, and we appreciate that. And uh, we hope that the concern will carry over, and you'll just keep praying for us uh, while we uh, are gone. I, I wanted to let you know we are not going to go as far into Ukraine as we had originally planned. Things have changed there. Uh, in the West, and it's gotten a little a little dicier than it was for a long time. And um, our friends there have advised us that it would be best for us not to do that. We will get to go across the Slovakian border into Ukraine and to the city of Uzgorod, which uh, is uh, so close to Slovakia that I think even I could outrun the Russians um, <laughs> if need be. But it, it nothing has happened down in that area throughout the whole war, and, and uh, there's a group of Christians there, some of whom we know and love, and uh, we want to go and uh, be with them and encourage them. And also we want to uh, get to know those that we do not know. Prior to that, we'll be in Poland, and uh, several of our, our sisters in Christ who evacuated from uh, Ukraine and living in various parts of Europe are going to meet us in the city of Krakow. And uh, we'll get to spend next weekend with them, uh, God willing. And we ask for your prayers and blessings on them. Uh, a lot of them have gone home, but some of them have not. And uh, it's going to be all the more difficult for those who don't get to go home yet. And uh, so please pray for them and for us as we try to be encouraging to them. In 1897, a woman by the name of Eliza Hewitt wrote what would become a very popular gospel song for many. It was called, Will There Be Any Stars in My Crown? Any of you ever heard it? Okay, some of you are really old. Um, I actually know the melody, but I'm not going to sing it for you, so rest easy. But here are the words to Eliza Hewitt's song. I am thinking today of that beautiful land I shall reach when the sun goeth down. When through wonderful grace by my Savior I stand, will there be any stars in my crown? In the strength of the Lord, let me labor and pray. Let me watch as a winner of souls, that bright stars may be mine in the glorious day 
when his praise like the sea billow rolls. Oh, what joy it will be when his face I behold, living gems at his feet to lay down. I would sweeten my bliss in the city of gold. Will there be any stars in my crown? Will there be any stars, any stars in my crown when at evening the sun goeth down? When I wake with the blessed in the mansions of rest, <clears throat> will there be <clears throat> excuse me, any stars in my crown? Well, that song expresses the very popular notion that we can do something to enhance our place in heaven, that we can make heaven better for ourselves by being there. And that being the case, then that would suggest that heaven's not going to be the same for everybody, that some people will be more blessed, in Eliza Hewitt's words, have more stars in their crown than others, uh, and will have a greater reward because of what they've done here on earth. And the question uh, is, is there a heavenly rewards program? Are, are we graded on the lives that we live uh, here on the earth and then rewarded accordingly when we get to heaven? Now, there's something very appealing about that idea, isn't there? It, it kind of seems to us that, uh, it, it, that some folks just deserve a better heaven than others do. And you probably got people in your mind, you know, and you may have even said it about somebody. If anybody ever deserved to go to heaven, that person did, you know. And, and we all tend to think that way, and, and we kind of like that idea uh, that some uh, will have a better heaven than others because of their godly lives or their exceptional service to the kingdom. But the question is, the scriptures say that. Is that something the Bible teaches? Should you and I be living our lives here on earth in anticipation of, of somehow accumulating those stars when we reach heaven? Can we make heaven better for ourselves? And therefore, will heaven be the same for everybody or will it be different for some folks than for others? I don't think the Bible teaches that that's right. I don't think the Bible says that heaven will be better for some people than for others. And let me explain to you why I think the Bible says so. You heard read at the beginning of the service, Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. You notice how that parable starts out. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he tells that parable about the landowner who goes out early in the morning and hires laborers and then goes out mid-morning and hires laborers, goes out midday and hires laborers, goes out mid-afternoon all the way up to the last hour of the workday and hires laborers and sends them into his vineyard. And at the end of the day, they all line up to get their pay, starting with those who worked only one hour up to those who worked the longest. And so when the guys who had only worked one hour got their pay, they got a full day's wage. They got a denarius. And the guys who were standing at the back of the line, you know, were kind of straining forward to see what those fellows got. And they see that they're getting a denarius, and they're thinking, man, there's no telling what I'm going to get. I, I, may get I may get a free tank of gasoline, you know, when, <laughs> when, when I get up there. They, they're just really anticipating a great reward when they get up there. But when they get up to the head of the line, they get the same thing. And they're none too happy about it. And they start grumbling about it. And the master of the house said, Am I not allowed to do with what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the first will be last and the last first. You know, in some ways, we've never really liked that parable, have we? 
Because we read it and we think, well, I don't blame those guys at the back of the line. That's not fair. And that's exactly the point. The kingdom of God is not about fairness. The kingdom of God is not about what you earn and what I earn and what, about what anybody else earns. It is about the graciousness of God in bestowing his blessings on whomever he chooses. And if he chooses to give the same to those who come at the last hour as to those who have labored a long time or labored better, however you want to put it, that's his business. We will just be thankful to have a place in his kingdom at all. It's not about what we deserve. And that's what that parable teaches. But not only that, the scripture reading from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. When Paul wrote that, that's the last chapter he ever wrote, by the way. When Paul wrote that, he was about to be executed. And he knew that he was about to be executed. But he's not complaining about it. He's not whining about it. And he tells us why he's not. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Paul, Paul didn't want to be executed by the sword. Paul didn't want to get his head cut off. But he said, it's okay, because I know what's waiting for me. What's waiting for me is that crown of righteousness, which the righteous judge, not the unrighteous judge who sentenced me to death, but the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And it sounds like Paul is expecting something special, doesn't it? That, that crown of righteousness. Until you read the rest of verse 8. And not only to me, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul wasn't saying, I think I'm going to have some special apostolic crown. All the rest of you are just going to have ordinary crowns, and mine's going to have a big old A right here in the middle of it. Paul wasn't expecting to get more than other people. He said, what I'm expecting is what God has in store for all who have loved the appearing of his son. He wasn't looking for something more than other believers. After all, remember who Paul was. What did he say about himself? He said that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He was the worst of sinners. He said that because of his persecuting past. He said, I'm the least of all the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle. He wasn't expecting God to grant him something special, something extra when he got to heaven. He wasn't thinking that at the end of his life, God was going to reward him in some way that was better than what other people had because he said, I don't deserve what I've got. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle, but he saved me. And that, that's by his grace. In Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, it's what we call the parable of the talents. Remember that a talent was a weight of money. It was not a, not a special ability, you know, tap dancing or something of that nature. It was, it, it was money. And in that parable, a master of a house entrusts his servants, three of them, with money. He entrusts one of them with five talents, and one with two, and one with one, and he goes away and leaves that money with them to be invested or used while he's gone. And then he comes back, and when he does, the five-talent man 
comes to him and he said, I took your talents, your five talents, and I made five talents more. Here, here's your five talents and here's the prophet. And what did he say? You remember? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You've been faithful over little, I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the two-talent man comes. And he said, I, I took your two talents, I, I used those two talents, I invested them, and now here's your two talents, and here's two talents more. And what did he say to him? Exactly the same thing that he said to the five-talent man. He didn't say, he didn't say, you've been faithful over a little, I'm going to set you over a little more. He said, I'm going to set you over much. He didn't say to him, enter into the outer courtyard of the joys of your master. He said, enter into the joys of your master. The same thing that he said to the five-talent man. Uh, he was not, not being more generous toward one than the other. He gave them, each of them, by his mercy, by his grace, and told them to enter into the joy of his master. So I don't think the Bible teaches that we have different degrees of heaven. You know, some wonder, well, what did Paul mean about the, the second and third heaven? You know, he was caught up into the third heaven. I really don't know. Judaism had a lot of different beliefs about that. Some believed in three heavens and some in five and some in seven. The Bible doesn't really help us understand that. It just tells us that, that we're going to go there and, and as we follow Jesus. Uh, and, but it doesn't talk about all of that. But I don't think that there are degrees of reward. If there's not a difference in the, in the five-talent man and the two-talent man, and Paul didn't expect anything than anybody else who loves the appearing of Christ, I don't believe it's the case that heaven is different for different people. Well, we might ask the question, then why aren't there degrees of reward in heaven? Shouldn't somebody like Paul or Peter or John deserve better than the rest of us? What about people who serve Christ for a lifetime? What about people who serve Christ in very difficult circumstances? Shouldn't they have a better heaven than that criminal crucified with Jesus who turned to him just at the last hour, who, who never spent a day of his life, not one day, serving the Lord? Shouldn't they have a better heaven than other people? The reason is simply this. Every one of us, whether it's Peter or Paul or John or that thief on the cross or the greatest missionaries who ever lived or those who come to Christ in their, in their dying moments, every one of us are all saved the same way. It's all by God's grace. It's all by God's grace. You remember the definition of grace? It is God's what? Unmerited favor. It's unmerited favor. There's absolutely nothing in it that comes to us because we deserve it. And so if that's true for you and true for me and true for the thief on the cross, it's true for Paul. It's true for the best person you've ever known, the greatest Christian you've ever known, the most devout servant of the Lord you've ever known. It's the same for everybody because it's God's, by God's grace. Somebody might wonder, though, but what about those texts in the Bible that speak about our reward in heaven? And there are several of those, aren't there? You look at Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. 
Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Your reward is great in heaven, he says. So what's the reward if it's not special status? The answer is simply being there. Just being there. Your reward, the fact that you are in heaven. The fact that you are redeemed by the blood of Christ. The fact that God saves you and allows you into his heavenly kingdom. Jesus did not say greater is your reward in heaven than that of other people. Let me tell you something. If heaven is, as the Jews believed, a heavenly banquet, I don't think any of us when we get there are going to quibble about where we sit at the table. I think we're just going to be thankful to have a seat. We don't care where it is, do we? And a star in your crown? Who cares whether we have any there or not? We're just going to be thankful to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I don't believe heaven is any different for one person than it is for another. Well, we need to talk about the opposite of that, too. If that's, if that's true, that heaven is the same for all, is that true of hell? Is hell the same for everyone who goes there? Some believe that just as salvation is by grace for everyone, and so heaven is the same for all, that that's true also of condemnation that we are all condemned, people who are condemned are condemned based on sin, and we're all sinners, the Bible says that. And so all sinners would be on the same plane, not redeemed by Jesus' blood, and therefore would receive the same condemnation. But I think there's some problems with that. First of all, Jesus himself said that judgment will be worse for some people than it will be for others. He said that. If you look in your Bible, Matthew chapter 11, beginning of verse 20, Jesus rebuked some of the cities where he had gone, some of the cities where he had performed his mighty works, some of his miracles, and yet they had rejected them. As he said, they did not repent. He speaks of cities uh, such as Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. And of those first two, Chorazin and Bethsaida, he said it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now, Tyre and Sidon were famous among the Jews for their godlessness. They were famous. The prophets were frequently speaking out against Tyre and Sidon because of their evil, because they resisted God's will, because they turned away from his word. And, and Jesus says, it's going to be better on the day of Tyre and Sidon than it will for you, because I was there in your midst. You got to see the power of God at work in your midst. And so it's going to be better on the day of judgment for those awful places than it will be for you. And then look what he says about Capernaum. It will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. You remember Sodom, don't you? Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, good. Somebody was listening. Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed by God because of their wickedness. And yet he says to Capernaum, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, what's he saying? He's not saying it's going to be okay for Tyre and Sodom and Sodom. 
He's not saying that. He's just saying it's going to be better for them than what those towns that rejected Jesus in person will receive at the judgment. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I, I really don't. I don't know what a worse judgment looks like than a less worse judgment. I, I don't know. But Jesus said it, and I believe it's got to be true, that somehow it's going to be worse for them than for others. Luke 12 Verses 41 to 48, Jesus tells another parable and gives a warning against being unfaithful servants. Again, it's about a, a master who goes away, okay? A master goes away, and he leaves his servant in charge of his household. He's supposed to give the other servants their food. He's supposed to take care of things, but he doesn't. He says, my master's delayed, and so he begins to get drunk and to beat the other servants and to just make a mess out of everything. And then his master comes, and he has to answer for it. And Jesus said that that servant who knew what he should be doing but didn't do it, he says, because the master is delayed, will receive a severe beating. But then he says, but that servant who did not know and yet didn't do the right thing, but he didn't know what he was supposed to be doing, will receive a light beating. Now, again, I don't know what that looks like. I don't want a beating from God, light or heavy. I don't know what a worse one is than, than one that's less worse. But notice they both receive a beating, but it's not the same. It's not the same condemnation. Mark 12, verses 38 to 40, Jesus warned against the scribes and their religious arrogance. He said, while they devour widows' houses, they love that pretense. They love the long robes. They like for everybody to salute them as rabbi in the marketplaces. And at the same time, they're taking advantage of widows, gobbling up the possessions of widows. And he said, they will receive the greater condemnation. They will receive the greater condemnation. And then listen to Hebrews 10, verses 28 and 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace? How much worse punishment for rejecting Christ than for rejecting the law. And finally, it seems to me that God's justice, and we know God is just, it would seem to me that God's justice demands that there be different kinds of punishment for different people. Can we really believe that someone who never heard the gospel but lived a decent life would receive the same condemnation in eternity as a Hitler or a Stalin? Can we really believe that somebody who just maybe heard the gospel but misunderstood it, didn't follow scripture as they should have done, but tried to live a good life, is going to receive the same condemnation as a mass murderer? It's kind of hard to believe that that's true. Are all sins really alike? You know, some people say, I've heard people say, a sin is a sin is a sin. They're all just alike. Oh, I really don't think so, do you? You know, Jesus said uh, in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, we ought not to hate our brother. 
And he compares that to killing. He said, you, commit, you committed murder already in your heart. But I tell you what, if you've got a choice to make between hating me or killing me, I just assume you hate me. Okay? They're not all alike. All sins are not alike. It's not true. John 19, verse 11, Jesus told Pilate, when Pilate said, don't you know that I have the authority to release you or the authority to condemn you? Jesus said, you would have no authority at all over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. The greater sin. Not all sin is alike. Not all sinners are alike. And Scripture indicates that not all receive the same condemnation. Now, here's what I don't want you to take away from this. Okay, let me say this again. Here's what I do not want you to take away from this. I don't want you to go away from here thinking that hell isn't going to be so bad for some people. I don't want you to leave thinking that because that's not what I'm saying. Remember what heaven is. Heaven is being in the presence of God for all eternity. So what's hell? It's being without the presence of God for all eternity. It's being outside of God's presence. And even though that may be a worse experience for some than for others, it's still the absolute worst thing that can happen to anybody. Because where God is, isn't, there isn't anything good. Where God is, there's no love. Where God isn't, there's no love. Where God isn't, there's no forgiveness. Where God isn't, there's no mercy. Where God isn't, there's no comfort. Where God isn't, there is no joy. Where God is not, there is no hope. So don't even think about settling for hell. Don't even think in your mind, you know, if eternity is not as bad for some as for others, and it's, and it's a challenge to live for Jesus, I think I'll just risk the lesser hell. Don't even think that way. Don't even think about that. Because no one is going to be glad to be there. Nobody. In John 14, verses 1 to 3, Jesus said that in his Father's house there are many rooms. And he said, if it weren't so, I would have told you But I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. That's what Christ has done for us. He's come to this earth. He's lived and died. He gave his life for our sins. He was raised from the dead. He's gone back into the presence of the Father. And someday he will come again and receive to himself those who follow him. So that where he is in heaven, there we may be also. That's the only eternity worth having. That's the only eternity that you want. And by God's grace, everybody here today can have that eternity. Going to heaven isn't about collecting stars in your crown. But believe me, when you get to heaven, you'll just be thankful to be there. You'll just be grateful for a seat at the table, and you'll know it just doesn't get any better than this. It doesn't get any better than being in the presence of God for all eternity. So I I hope you'll decide today, if you haven't done it before, I hope you'll decide today that in God's presence is where you want to be for all eternity.
and you'll do something about it today. Let's stand together and sing. Oh, your sins be